Before we begin, I would like to uh, ask you to bow your heads one more time with me as we uh, seek the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, today as we are opening your word, you have so much to tell us. And we have so much to learn. But Father, I ask that as you speak through me this morning, that it won't be my words, but your words. And that your spirit will act upon the hearts of all those who are listening. Whether here, at home, in other places, Lord, we ask for you to, uh, to fill us with your power and your spirit today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Samuel 2, verse, or chapter 11, begins with these words. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. Now, if you recall from your history, uh, you understand that the Ammonites were one of the nations that were nearby, and they kept bothering the, uh, the Israelites. But David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And there begins the problem. Because you see, David was, was back behind. He was not leading his army. He had Joab, the, the commander of all of his armies, and he had him in charge of everything. And David was back home, and he was occupying his time in a little bit more leisurely way. And in fact, Scripture points out that he was one night up on top of the roof of his palace. Now, I've had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and, and see uh, a little bit about the architecture of Jerusalem. And David's palace was one of the highest areas in Jerusalem, and everything else was down below him. And David, up on top of his rooftop, was able to look down on the rest of the city. And as was sort of a tradition there, they, uh, some of the, uh, the people that were most trusted had their homes nearby. And one of them was one of David's mighty men. You recall David had a lot of people that are around him, but he had this special group of men, his special guard called the mighty men, and they, Uriah, his friend, lived nearby. And David looked down on the city, and what did he see but Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Now, why she was taking a bath that particular night on top of her house, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it so interests David that he says, Wow! Get her for me. Get her for me. 
And David committed the unpardonable, or he committed, I shouldn't say unpardonable, he committed a grave sin. Now, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. We know that David was king, and people, particularly the women, felt as though it was necessary to do whatever the king said. But David and Bathsheba had a trice that night there in the palace. They committed adultery. And then Bathsheba went home, but then not too long later, she sent this desperate note to the king. She says, "Uh, David, um, we got a problem. I'm pregnant. And David said, oh, well, you know, that's easily taken care of. What we'll do then is we will have your husband come home from the battles Take a little bit of a break, a little bit of a breather, and we'll have him just come home and and he will sleep with you. And then we'll say, well, because of the joy of that celebration of, of Uriah coming home, then that's where you got pregnant. But Uriah didn't didn't go along with that because he said, you know, I can't go home to my wife when all of my fellow soldiers are, are, are not able to come home to their wives and enjoy the company of their wives. I can't do that. I've got to, I, no, I, I need to go back to battle. So David said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a note back with you, a sealed envelope that has some instructions in it. Please give these to Joab. Very, very important, Uriah, that you get these right to Joab because he needs to do what is, what is asked of him. But unbeknownst to Uriah, in that letter it said, Send Uriah to the front lines and then withdraw all of your men from him so that he may be killed. And it happened just that way. Time went on. It became known through rumor and through gossip, uh, Bathsheba's pregnant and uh, we think it's uh, David. But David kept denying it. But then Nathan the prophet, Nathan the prophet came to David and said, gave an example and David recognized from what Nathan had to say, the story that he, that he told, he recognized that he was guilty because Nathan said, thou art the man. Thou art the man who deserves death. And David recognized it. 
You know, in in today's world, Sherry and I were reading in our worship book here, um, and I've, I've seen it over and over again. You see it in the classroom, you see it at work, you see it in a lot of places. When somebody is confronted as to something has gone wrong, they always say, well, it's their fault. Does that sound familiar? Uh, Parents, when you confront somebody at the house and say, uh, who did this? And the first response is, not me, not me, not me. But David didn't do that. David said, I am guilty. I am guilty. He took full responsibility. He didn't say, well, if Bathsheba hadn't been out there taking a bath, I wouldn't have watched her. And then I'd, you know, this whole thing is, it's all Bathsheba's fault. She made me do it. Or, man, somebody else's fault. No, David takes full responsibilities for his actions. But here we get to the important part, because David now has to confront his sinfulness. He has to look at what he has done wrong, and he needs to confront it. He needs to ask for forgiveness. He knows that he needs spiritual renewal. And realizes that this kind of a Ritual doesn't happen just by the things that you do. It doesn't happen by human hands. It's more than an intimate, uh, it's more intimate than an outward washing or sprinkling. Now, I told you that I had a chance to go to Jerusalem, and one of the things that is, is quite amazing there is the so many different places around the temple. They will have different places where people would go and do a ritual washing, a ritual cleansing before they walk the steps up into the temple. And in fact, we even went to one place. It was actually a building and it was a a pool where people would go through the process of ritual cleansing for things that they may have done. And David said, no, that's not, that's not what you want. God, it's something, it's work that is done with the heart. And David was so adamant about his relationship with God, he wanted back what, we, what he had lost. He wrote Psalm 51. And I want to show you here if, if this is, yep, here we go. Psalms 51, verse 2. First of all, David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This was a prayer to God. He wasn't talking to the high priest. He was talking to God. But then he says, look here, 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And, and, and sometimes we, we misunderstood the steadfast. He says, uh, renew a right spirit within me. Lord, help me get back on the right path and may the spirit be with me. Help me. He's asking for a clean heart. He's asking for forgiveness. He's doing the right thing because he's acknowledging his sin. He asked God to purchase. If you read some of the other verses, he's asking God to purge him with hyssop. Now, we might not quite understand what hyssop is, but it is, it is a type of a, a, a plant that has a blossom on it. And it... Uh, you symbolically wipe it over someone, and that in the Old Testament was a, a symbol of God's grace coming into your life. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be as white as snow. Once David understood how he had sinned against the Lord, he longed for a chance to reconcile. He wanted back what he had lost. But David didn't want to go just through the motions. He knew that he needed much more. And in verses 16 and 17, which Brother Adams read to us, he says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You know, frankly, sacrifice, if if that's what we had to do, if that's all that we had to do, it would be pretty easy. I mean, he was the king. He could just go to the, uh, uh, to the palace uh, shepherd fold and just, hey, I'll take that lamb. Here, let's, okay, let's go to the temple. You, you go through the operation here. Let's, let's cut the throat. Let's do all the deeds. Put the lamb on the altar. And yeah, we can. That's it. But he says, look, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. What does he say? He says, you do not delight in burnt offering. Have you ever thought, you know, with all of the burnt offerings that God asked for, David is saying, you don't delight in that. So what does God delight in? He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now, let's do something here. Can we, can we, let's fast, do a fast rewind into, uh, into David's life. What do we know David for? He was a shepherd boy. But then we also know the story of David and Goliath. That's probably the biggest story that we know about David. But David, much earlier in his life, had learned a lesson that applies here because King Saul and the entire Israelite army were faced with the challenge by the Philistines. The Philistines had put up their giant, their their Goliath, nine foot tall. I was talking to our students in, in, uh, in the academy. We're trying to estimate nine foot tall. This is probably 
Folks, is this an eight or a nine foot ceiling in here? It's an eight foot ceiling. Okay, add another one foot tall. And uh, uh, what's the tallest person that you have ever met? Anyone? The seven foot. Okay. Anyone else? Seven foot. Six seven. Okay. Really tall. A uh, lot taller than I am. A lot taller than I am. I, I had the privilege one time of, uh, not that I spoke to him, I just happened to see him. Uh, uh, the Houston Rockets used to have a, a basketball player by the name of Yao Ming. Seven foot five. Seven foot five. That's the tallest that I've ever seen. Goliath was nine foot tall. And Saul and the whole Israelite army was afraid of him because he said, hey, send your champion out and meet me because I'm the champion of the Philistines. And whoever wins between us, whoever wins, their army wins the battle. And you have to serve us. And he was making all kinds of comments. First Samuel 17.11 says, On hearing Goliath's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. But here's the problem. You see, Saul and the entire Israelite army acted as though God wasn't leading them and had no part in the battle. It was all up to them. Problem is, when you and I face troubles here on this earth, we act the same way. It's all up to us. To fix it, to take care of it, it's up to us. We can live life thinking that it's all up to us. We can say with our mouths there is a God. We can turn our problems over to God. But in our hearts we act as if there is no God. One writer said it this way. He says, we might be functional atheists. Because we don't act like it. We can live as if there is no God. Because like Saul, our confidence only extends as far as our own strengths and abilities. Like Saul, we might know that there is a God. But we're shivering and shaking in our boots when we are supposed to face the things God puts in front of us. We can quickly forget that we are more than conquerors in Christ. We think it's all up to us. We forget that anything is possible through Jesus Christ. Now, David had already learned that lesson. Years ago. Years ago, when he was a teenager... 16, 17 years old, he faced Goliath. He had learned that lesson. He went against Goliath, not thinking, man, you know, with these five stones and my slingshot, I'm going to be able to take down that giant. No, he says, no, God is on our side. 
It was in his humbleness, in his broken spirit. It was not David that faced Goliath. It was God working through David to bring down that giant. Saul was relying on his own power, and it was terribly lacking. And that's what we do when we try to face earth's and life's problems on our own. Thinking that God is not powerful enough to help us face the problems that we have, face our addictions. I was talking to the fellows yesterday there at the jail. I mentioned this in in Sabbath school class. I work with the trustees at the Marion County Jail, and I talk with them each week. And because they're trustees and because they uh, a lot of times will transfer out and going to the Texas Department of Corrections or perhaps they are transferred to a different county to face charges there. But each one of them have problems that they have to face. Sometimes it's addictions. Sometimes it is ways of life. And I say, God... Guys, the only way you can face them 100% of the time is with Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. We need to first of all recognize that we are not powerful enough to face these problems. The first step in the 12 steps, the Alcoholics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous is recognizing your powerlessness. The second step is to recognize that there is a God. And we know very clearly there is a God. Third, we need to recognize we need to surrender all power over to Him. Now we, so many times, we we don't quite understand the idea of surrender. Sometimes we say, Lord, now you take, you take all that you want uh, and I'll, I'll hold on to this quarter or this, this 25% over here. You've got 75%, Lord. I'll, leave, I'll give you that, but I'll, I want to hang on to this because I want to have some control. And that's what Saul needed to say. He needed to say, there is a God of power and I'm not facing this giant alone. I can't face this God, this giant with God. But he never learned to trust God. Fast forward to David and Bathsheba and his repentance for the Bathsheba debacle. And frankly, friends, there are some times when we need to learn or relearn a lesson that we have learned in the past. Sometimes we forget what has happened in the past and we need to relearn it. And God puts situations in our path where we need to relearn. And this was one of those times for David. He needed to relearn that he, that we are powerless until we turn the controls of our life over to God. We need to be broken. Now listen, listen to this and read this with me. Psalm 51 verses 16 and 17 in the New Living Translation. It says, you do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. 
David starts out. He says, you do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now, in the Hebrew language, whenever the word broken is used, in this situation, it is talking about a very devastating definition because to be broken means to be broken in pieces. To completely crush, to cut off, to destroy, to quench, to shatter, to splinter. David was saying, with those definitions, you need to have, I need to have a broken, splintered spirit. The word contrite in the Hebrew means to collapse, to severely break, to crouch. Now, using those, or using those definitions, let's take a look again at verse 17. But we're going to put it in the Gene Clapp paraphrase of this, using the definitions from those Hebrew words. He says, the, spirit, or the sacrifice you desire is a completely crushed, a quenched, a shattered spirit, a collapsed heart that is repentant and lives only through Jesus Christ. Friends, he is asking that we do not live, but he lives totally in us. We, meaning our self, our self. Look at this. Desire of Ages, page 280, says, Man must be emptied of self before he can be in the fullest sense a believer in Jesus. Are you a believer in Jesus? We must be emptied of self. Then she goes on, she says, when self is renounced, then the Lord can make a new creature. Remember when Jesus was talking about Being born again? That's what she's talking about. Being born again. The love of Christ will animate the believer with new life in him who looks onto the author and finisher of our faith. The character of Christ will be manifest. Friends, Sister Ellen is telling us that when we look upon Christ with a broken, shattered, destroyed human spirit, when we no longer say, I can do it myself, when we claim Jesus, the power, the character of Christ will shine through because it is no longer us that people see, but it is Jesus Christ. God wants your heart to be fully given to him. Is your heart fully given to him, to God? If your heart is, then God wants to strengthen you. He wants to use you. If he isn't, if your heart isn't fully given to him, he can't use you. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says it this way. 
As we become empty of self and dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit will use us. But we must return to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Is Christ in your heart? Is He Lord of your heart? He can cleanse your heart. He can forgive you. He can purify you. Then He will sit on the throne of your heart. He will be your Lord and call the shots for your life. If God is Lord of your heart, He can do great things in you. He can do great things in your marriage. He can do great things in your workplace, at the school, wherever you are at, out on the field. He can do great things in your future and your plans. But if you have not made Him Lord of your heart, He can't make you into the masterpiece that He wants. And friends, I ask you, as David said, let your heart be broken. Let my heart be broken. Let my spirit be shattered so that it is Christ who shows and who lives in me. We can be of full strength through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, today we do ask that you come into our hearts. But Lord, help it to not be just a loose uh, desire. Help it to be something that is, it is something truly within us that we are asking for. Lord, we want that broken heart. We want that broken spirit, not because we want to be hurt, but because we want to be close to you. And we want to follow what you want rather than our desires, because we're not fighting this battle alone. It is with you at our side. Bless us and be with us throughout this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.